Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 93, released on October 31st, 2018. Today, we will talk about citizen countries being unhappy with tech companies and their disruptive practices. Not that it's something we want specifically to talk about, but the news of the past week saw both Airbnb and Google uh, take some hits. We also have a pre-recorded interview held by Robin Wouters uh, with the managing director of Seven Ventures. We are also going to talk about upcoming events and share books and stories we have come across recently. I am your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in dark and cold and gloomy Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer based in bright and nice Edinburgh. How, Natalie, how is life? Hi, Andre. It's actually not too bright here anymore, and it's actually very, very cold. Definitely fall is over, and it is now winter, even though it is spooky Halloween today for this podcast. Yeah, as we recorded, I think it's much spookier still here in Amsterdam, uh, since it's since already like dark, fully dark at uh, earlier than uh, six o'clock, which for me definitely means that the winter is here and it's time to turn on the heating and get uh, all the thick blankets uh, out of the closet. So, nevertheless, uh, despite the cold and uh, bad weather uh, in uh, Europe, uh, we had pretty big deals uh, coming uh, up our way over the past week. Uh, Natalie, can you talk more about the biggest one that we have seen? Yeah, so the biggest deal of last week goes to Berlin's Go Euro, who has raised a 150 million investment round by Kinevik and Temisek with participation from Hill House Capital. I really like Go Euro, and I was at a number of events that they did when I was living in Berlin. And it's a cool company with a really kind of um, smart founder team. And they really provide a lot of utility for people traveling around Europe and anyone that needs to go somewhere. Go Euro has really been a, a game changer, I think. So it doubles the amount of investment this round that that they've received total. Yeah, that's for sure. And I, I can totally say that uh, Go Euro and uh, similar platforms really help a lot, especially in terms of uh, train uh, rides in uh, Europe, because just the other day I had to take a train from Luxembourg uh, through uh, Belgium to Germany. And just out of curiosity, I tried first to buy the tickets at the websites of the actual uh, railways of the respective countries. It is totally impossible. They are just ridiculously bad. You cannot understand what's actually going on. Most of them do not actually have uh, English uh, language versions and I don't speak uh, Luxembourgish uh, for sure. So, but yeah, then I didn't use Go Euro. I use another similar platform, but I'm really appreciative of uh, uh, what uh, they are doing. It's, uh, it's really a great thing. Now, uh, if you're interested in all the rest of the big deals that we have seen so far, uh, you can go ahead and check out our premium subscription, which includes uh, the newsletter in which we arrange and structure all the deals that we see every week. And those are usually hundreds of together with uh, the most interesting 
interesting and important news uh, from the ecosystem across Europe. Now it is time to move forward towards the most interesting stories of the past week we wanted to talk about. Natalie, can you start off with uh, the story from your former hometown of Berlin? Yeah, sure. And this was a really interesting story that that we learned about last week that Google has abandoned their plans to open a Google campus um, in Berlin's Kreuzberg district. So um, Google for Entrepreneurs, which has since been renamed very confusingly Google for Startups. This happened very recently, this name change. But they've long had a presence in Berlin and doing lots of regular events out of um, Factory Berlin, um, the co-working space that really has for a long time been the central hub of the ecosystem there. And in the fall of 2016, Google announced they'd be building their own Google campus in a disused power station in Kreuzberg. The area has for a long time become one of the most affordable places to live in Berlin. And it's long been home to the city's Turkish community. Um, and it's also been really a mecca for students, artists, and it has a very bohemian nature. This neighborhood, however, like many in Berlin, it has this unique culture and identity, but it's one that's come under increasing amounts of threat as the city has gentrified. And tech is definitely part of that gentrification process. Berlin is a city with the highest rising property prices. It's raised 20% from 2017 to 2018. But most people in Berlin rent, not buy, but the rents have risen pretty high as well. And especially when building and property owners are selling their properties to take advantage of these prices, um, that's when um, rent controls and those sorts of things um, really become under threat. So the growing popularity of the city has changed the character of some of Berlin's neighborhoods. So when Google announced it would be building a campus here, the, the neighborhood really was fighting back. So this local community is very unique in that is really particularly organized. And it successfully negotiated a number of previous ev evictions and building use changes that have taken place over the past several years. So when Google decided to put the campus in Kreisberg where they wanted to put it, they might not have really known who they were dealing with. So this was a highly organized community that had really been through an, a number of these building use battles. When Google came in and said that they wanted to put their campus here, the, the community was particularly ready for a fight and they, they really dug in. And the prime grievance they had was really against further gentrification of the neighborhood. And the activists questioned Google's community initiative, suggesting the campus, and I'll quote from, from their website, this project will turn the neighborhood into a large-scale laboratory for the deployment of their new invasive technologies. Instead of a nice, friendly campus, we see a Google farm for harvesting Kreuzberg's brains and talents, or a Google mine in which ideas and data will be extracted out of Berlin, end quote. So Google spent a lot of time over the past two years working really hard to convince the community of their, of their initiative and their, and their goals. They invited residents to learn more about the project and really tried to bring um, the Berlin Senate and other political groups into the conversation to make it work. And there was a very strong level of support from some members of the Berlin tech community, but also from the wider community as well that saw Google as providing a really valuable opportunity in this area. But after two years of regular protests over the project and the completion of the construction and the building process, 
Google decided to it wasn't worth continuing. And they handed the keys of building over to the online donation platform Better Place and the Karuna Association, which is a, a nonprofit organization founded in Berlin that helps children. So according to Google startups, um, Rowan Barnett, who was the prospective head of the Berlin campus, um, Google will let these organizations use the space rent-free until 2023, and Google will continue to pay the ongoing costs for the building. And Google will not be involved in the program and content work and anything that takes place in the building or the neighborhood, and they have no other plans to build another campus in Berlin. So today there are six Google campuses around the world and in Europe, they can be found in London, Madrid, and Warsaw. So no campus Berlin. Have you been to the other campuses? I've been to the one in Madrid and it is a very kind of beautiful space, obviously. And it, there's lots of great community programs and things, but most of them surround kind of how to use Google's products. Um, and, but this is really kind of in line with a number of the activities that that they're doing already um, at Factory Berlin elsewhere. They also have childcare and a number of different services that the local community sometimes can struggle with with providing for founders. So it's not always the worst, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I've been to the ones in London and Warsaw, actually, and in Warsaw, I was there uh, when they just opened it uh, first. So yeah, I do agree they're beautiful, and I do actually like the general vibe they have. Yeah, my take on this would be that this is a good example of uh, Google being aligned with its new main motto, so doing the right thing in this case, because first of all, I do think for the record that the requirements of the community were not entirely reasonable because Google in this case would create uh, jobs. And I think in general, uh, this kind of uh, building would be a good thing for the community. But I mean, whatever. And uh, Google looking at uh, two years of uh, protests, just uh, handing the keys over to charity organizations and letting them use the building for uh, five more years is kind of yeah the right thing to do and uh, it is uh, only a pity for berlin that there is not going to be a dedicated google campus there i do hope that maybe they would turn to amsterdam or another place uh, uh, in europe to to build one because i do think it's uh, it's a good place for a startup and i also have uh, taken a look at this uh, website uh, that you put in the show notes fword of uh, google.de and this is just i don't know i can't agree with a single point made there and particularly with that quote that you <laughs> that you mentioned about the lab and the extraction of ideas and harvesting Kreuzberg brains and talents. I mean, this is way over the top and I'm not really sure that it makes any sense at all. On the other hand, I can see that uh, some protests in uh, San Francisco where the situation is much more dire uh, than uh, uh, Berlin can come even close to uh, might have kind of inspired uh, certain people uh, in Berlin to uh, come up with measures like uh, they have taken. Yeah, and and it's hard to say. The community here is there's been a lot of pain um, over the last several years that maybe was not that was conveniently directed towards Google as being kind of a symptom of something that is more a broader Berlin problem um, when you have kind of the levels of new people moving to the city and really a lot of change in the neighborhood and um, with the property prices and, and that sort of thing. Berlin is kind of, 
is, is experiencing a lot, a lot of changes and um, the community is really channeled. It, it's convenient in some ways to channel your anger to a corporation, a multinational like Google becomes very convenient because, I mean, as, as I mentioned, that it was a disused power station. So it was a building that hadn't been used um, had for anything um, up until that point. Yeah, it, it is an, a fascinating example of a community self-organization, though, that's for sure. It's, it's really interesting to see. Now, continuing the topic of Germany, it is time for today's pre-recorded interview, and it's a conversation uh, that uh, was recorded by our founding editor, Robin Wouters, uh, with Florian Pautner, the CEO Managing Director of Seven Ventures. We will leave you to it for a few minutes and uh, we'll be back soon with more uh, trashing of uh, Silicon Valley companies. Uh, so, hey, Robin Waters, I'm uh, here in Berlin for the Zero One Hunt conference focused on VC and uh, private equity. Uh, I'm sitting down with Florian from Seven Ventures. Uh, maybe you can uh, briefly introduce yourself. Absolutely. Very happy to. Uh, thank you, Robin. Great to meet. Um, yeah, Florian, I'm CEO of Seven Ventures. Seven Venture is the financial investment arm of the Pro Sieben Alliance Group, um, which is the largest free-to-air television group here in the German-speaking region. And uh, what we do is basically de deploying what we have, our media, and investing it into kind of cross companies uh, in the B2C market to really make them bigger and establish a brand in the market. How long have you been uh, around? Like, how long has the investment arm been operational? So we actually kind of like our, our roots trace, uh, trace back to like 2009. The formal foundation of Seven Ventures was then like 2010, 2011. And since then we have started investing. So one of our first cases, Zalando, the kind of in Germany, everybody knows the Schrei vor Glück or Bring Zurück campaign. And so that, that was our start. And back then, obviously, big focus on e-commerce. Over these years, we have developed and looked into more businesses. So fintech came on top of it. Other business now, intratech obviously being being one interesting thing. We also looked into turnaround cases at a, at a later stage. All these situations where we think that kind of you know branding provides additional value to the other investors as well as to the company, and just together we can grow like at, at an earlier stage. Because at a later stage, we all believe like these companies could go to the primary marketers. They buy media and they, they go the regular way. But we really want to accelerate this growth and be the speedboat for these companies to, to get a known brand. Right. Um, so on a very basic level, you not only uh, provide cash and network uh, to the companies like most VCs do, but you also have the opportunity to provide uh, media coverage and advertisements that they normally wouldn't be able to afford. Uh, so it's sort of a media for equity, I guess uh, you can call it. Uh, how do you value the package that you give to your startups? Let's call it that. I would say, I mean, at earlier days when I wasn't even at the company, it probably was even more complicated because media for equity still was something new. Since then, as you can imagine, like in Germany, we have, we have followed a lot of businesses. So we have more than 60 partners that we are running through each year that go on air with us and uh, where we're trying to build the brand together. Uh, and in most cases, this is really successful. So obviously with all that, there, there is more trust in how we, how we price it. But the, the thing is, we always price it at a, at a fair thing. So what we look at is we have a target return that we want to achieve. And we are also always exit driven. So we look at the potential exit value and think about, okay, if we invest that today, we take a certain price tag and obviously this should increase towards the exit. But that it's, it's a regular pricing mechanism that at least amongst the, these startups in the B2C world seems to be quite, quite well known, even though like each term obviously is, is, is private and confidential. Sure, but does that mean you only invest in companies that operate in the regions that ProSiemens actually operates in as a media company? 
the businesses, I mean, they're all in different uh, kind of industries as kind of like media. So most of them are e-commerce, fintech, internet tech. But obviously, we look for businesses that come to the German-speaking region. Nevertheless, we source from everywhere. So we are invested, for example, in Casper, classic US direct-to-consumer startup that we have supported in their way coming over to the German market. But this is essential. So we can't support them really any anywhere else since we don't have the media power uh, if, if we go outside of the German-speaking region. There, we have a European media alliance, so we have partners in other European countries uh, that we can kind of, you know, bring to the deal and support these businesses also growing in other markets. But our edge is really in the German-speaking region. So we look all over the world, bringing them over to Germany. Got it. In terms of structure, do you uh, do you only have one LP, which is ProSiebenSat? Do you invest off the group's balance sheet? Like, how does it actually function? Absolutely. Yes, we are a balance sheet investor, more like an evergreen fund um, in, in that way. Uh, that, that means um, we really look what we can do best with what we have as an inventory in our crew and also how we can leverage like the synergies within the group when we do invest. But we don't have like probably like a regular fund with like a 10 year of seven years all over and a four year investment phase. It's This is a bit more relaxed at our end uh, since we are then opportunity driven and we can look into what suits best the strategy of the group and the strategy of seven ventures. Right. Do you have any other initiatives within the group um, that have anything to do with open innovation or working with startups aside from seven ventures? Absolutely. I would say we are an extreme innovative group. Um, so it, it starts very early stage. We have an accelerator program, which is called the ProSiebenSat Start Ions Accelerator. There we go in really early stage. Um, we support businesses post series. Uh, like A or with series A or probably sometimes even at uh, seed stage, then uh, kind of seven ventures would be the next add-on investment arm of the... But that's not automatically. You wouldn't automatically invest in all the companies that graduate. Right? Exactly. No. So so what are you, what, what's the cutoff? Like, what, What's your criteria for... I mean, our criteria as, as like ventures, we look at businesses at least with 5 million euros in revenue. Usually they are bigger. Um, we look for products that can really scale um, and business that we operate with, usually they are already kind of like nationwide listed either in supermarkets or their service runs really smoothly with logistics because we have experience kind of like in the, in the very past when we started, um, you need to have this certain tenure as a business uh, to be investable in because otherwise you go to television, which is kind of like still like, you know, the, the, the screen watched by most people in common and has the, has the biggest reach and, um, if, if you use that and you're not listed everywhere, you just, you, you burn some customers, uh, because they, they go to the supermarket trying to find your product. They don't find it. And then it's, you know, it's twice as expensive to get them back, uh, once sure. you are listed there. So uh, that's why we're looking at a certain size, uh, and kind of a good distribution a across the country. Um, for the accelerator, you also have to be distributed very well across the country, but still on a, on a much smaller scale. Um, so the conference here today opened this morning with a panel on corporate venture capital. Um, you were not on the panel. Was there yeah. anything that you took away, like from the audience, as a something you learned, something new insights, or something that you thought you agreed or disagreed with? Um, yeah, I, I, I agreed with a lot of what the, what the panelists said. There was one thing I think that, that needs to be handled. There was a question from the audience, kind of what do you think, um, how will corporate venture capital uh, tend to change uh, once probably a crisis comes in and kicks in? 
And honestly, I do believe this, this will be interesting to see. I fully agree to uh, the panel's answer that uh, probably the, the crisis will even hit stronger the, the classical VC business and the corporate venture capital business. But it, it depends on kind of like which corporate venture capital arm you are looking at. If it's a small portion of the business, uh, it's probably it, it goes through because it's not um, detrimental to the to the overall business. The bigger it gets, the more risky it could be. Um, but but that was very interesting because I, I can see like most of us in the corporate venture capital world share a similar view um, that you need to you need to balance the weight. Yeah, uh, you, you you deal each day with the innovation and small, very very fast driven businesses, and on the other side you deal with like a large corporate uh, which is which is settled, still innovative. Uh, and speedy, but it, you can't manage like a 5,000 people organization as fast as like a 10 people organization. So uh, each day you handle this and uh, you can see it from the answers that people still kind of, you know, have to handle the same, the same topics uh, yeah. with dealing with the kind of like probably like older world or more established world and the young and innovative world. Sure. Uh, the other thing you have to handle and deal with is, of course, other investors. Um, you co-invest, I guess, alongside VCs quite a bit. Yeah. Um, that gives you sort of, sort of a unique perspective on the German uh, VC scene. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, how is it evolving? Uh, how do you rate the German VC ecosystem in general? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So for us, it is essential since we are a media investor in most cases, we are usually taking part in capital rounds with other VCs. So, um, that, that's very essential for us to have strong partners there on the ground. And it has developed quite a lot. Like when you, when we started out in 2009 with like the, the early approaches, kind of, you know, this media of equity uh, was very important to scale up businesses because at a certain stage, um, maybe when you came to Series B, there was not enough liquidity in the market to fund these businesses. So then a media component, if you could raise 10 million probably in cash in Series B and you got another 5 to 10 million in media, you, you had a 20 million ticket, which you probably could not get, you know, straight cash. So we, we solved, we solved a problem, which was there in the market. The markets then developed very well. So there was more liquidity in the market. Um, which was very good for the market. And I mean, we can see it in Berlin, how this ecosystem kind of, uh, yeah, spread up and, uh, grew over the past years. But what we see now again is there's more liquidity coming into the market, but it's more centered. So even there's more liquidity, it goes to less businesses, which again makes media for equity an important, uh, important component of many deals because uh, kind of, you know, it goes a little back to the 2009. We're making up for a funding gap, which is then there in the market. And this is something where we support strongly and which is important. But we really see that there's a more, there's this trend that more money goes into like the same big or already established businesses. Sure. Okay. Quick final question. What do you think of the conference so far and what do you hope to get out of the rest of the day? Um, for me, the conference is mainly about networking, exchanging sorts, um, meet, meeting people that we know. And, uh, this is already said on pen. It's, it's very essential. It's same for us when we, when we went to the Mexico and uh, hosted our pitch day that we meet people, exchange thoughts and bring the thoughts back to interfering, back to our own office to discuss them through and see what we can take out of them. But that's, that's the main reason why Great. I joined. Great. Well, thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Hello and welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu number 93, released on the 31st of October 2018. It's still me, Andrei Degler, uh, joined today by Natalie Novik. So the next story of the day is about uh, Airbnb and Ireland. So Ireland is joining the ranks of the countries where Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms, for that matter, get heavily regulated. Uh, technically, it's rather the land lords that get the heat uh, uh, though but uh, they say that they regulate the platforms anyway the fact is that starting from june uh, next year landlords will have to apply for a permit uh, to offer their second homes as uh, short-term rentals and it seems like getting the permits will be next to impossible especially in cities like dublin as the authorities are hell-bent to return as many properties as possible uh, to the long-term rental market so simply speaking, as far as I can see it, uh, the new regulation means that uh, short-term rentals are given a status that's similar to that of hotels and uh, will now require special permissions uh, to run. In addition to that, homeowners in Ireland will only be allowed to rent uh, out their entire primary residences for up to 90 years, uh, sorry, 90 days a year and up to 14 days at a time. This is similar to what uh, we have, for example, here in Amsterdam, where people are only allowed to uh, rent for 60 days per year and they're going to change it to 30. So this is not the first time something like this is done. However, there is no restriction as to for how long uh, you can rent uh, out a room in your primary residence. So I do understand uh, the reasons uh, why the authorities are taking these measures uh, since uh, Ireland is uh, facing a huge housing shortage. But on the other hand, it means that a lot of people will be deprived of the freedom of disposing of their property as they please. And here I mean uh, landlords. Uh, after all, they only decided to switch from long term to short term because this is a way for them to get better returns on their investment. And uh, I do think there, there, there must be some incentivization of uh, landlords as well. And I think there is way too much stick and way not enough carrot uh, for them here. Anyway, from June 2019, the rules in Ireland change and there is going to be less Airbnb uh, supply. Just in time for summer. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess that uh, the, the only people who are really happy about it is hotel owners who can up their prices even more. And I, I have to say that uh, it's already pretty expensive in Dublin to stay in a hotel. I haven't for, for years uh, always taken Airbnb. Yeah. And, and when I lived in Ireland uh, 10 years ago, now I, I'm dating myself, but the property where I stayed, the rental price for that flat is now three times what it used, to, what it was when I moved there um, in 2007. The prices um, in Dublin have kind of grown enormously. And it's also another place where you have a lot of multinational tech companies that have a presence yes. in Ireland. Um, and the industry is, is one that's booming. But I, I look forward to checking it out. I will be um, in Ireland next month for Startup Week Dublin. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the um, response is there um, that everyone has to this new regulation. Right. So, yeah, if we look at the two news stories that we have talked about today together, it seems like the moment that this uh, disruptive tech uh, or just like basically bigger companies that happen to work in the tech industry uh, happen to interfere with some basic uh, human rights or like the, the things that humans want, 
as in have a roof uh, uh, above their heads, the clash uh, begins and it really becomes uh, pretty hard to say who is on the right in uh, in this fight. And I mean, it really it really saddens me to see uh, that uh, there is a fight between like uh, bigger tech companies that are not always evil. I um, I have to say, and uh, populations of uh, uh, cities and countries who just see them as enemies rather than uh, partners and friends. So, Natalie, you mentioned that you are going to uh, Ireland next month. Is there anywhere you're going earlier than that? Yeah. So this week, I'm looking forward to attending Startup Summit here in Edinburgh, which is uh, one of the leading startup events here. Um, it's a great local event um, put on by a really wonderful initiative, perfect for early stage companies. Really looking forward to it. Hope it's on Wednesday, Halloween. So. I hope not everyone is wearing a costume, um, but um, I, I think I'm going as a blockchain this year. So <laughs> whoever is at Startup Summit, um, look out for me um, as a blockchain. Um, Andre, uh, where, where are you going? Um, anywhere? Are you have anything on your calendar? Mm, I can check my calendar right now. Let me click. Uh, no, not really. Actually, no, I have nothing planned up until uh, slush, but of course there are sometimes some pop-up events that might happen in Amsterdam. We have lots of uh, different events uh, uh, happening, so I might be uh, attending uh, some smaller meetups that I don't know yet about. All right. So looking forward on the event calendar for November, really the big event this this month is Web Summit, of course. So I'll be there the, the whole week. So if um, anyone is there and would like to get in touch, let me know um, via the their app or um, you can contact me, Natalie, at tech.eu. And another event um, the first week of November is Connected Data London's conference on the 7th of November, which is a great event for data scientists, anyone that is working with data. Several really interesting themes concentrating on knowledge graphs, graph databases, AI, machine learning, and linked data. Uh, it's a one-day event with a really big program of speakers from some top companies. If you're interested in that and you're in London, um, November 7th, that might be something to check out. And looking forward um, into November, something that you might want to think about if you're building your calendar for the next month, there's an, a few Techstar startup weeks going on. Um, most of them start November 12th through the 16th. So in Valencia, Chemnitz, and Zagreb. Um, and then the week after, um, Talent Dublin and Bergen are also holding startup weeks. So uh, we'll talk about these a little bit more next week on the podcast, but these events and more are on our website. So if you have a suggestion of any event to add, let us know. Um, in the link is in our show notes. Great. A lot of events for me to have uh, the fear of missing out about. <laughs> anyway, let's move to our uh, book and story recommendation uh, part. And uh, for me, I'm actually going to do sort of a combined one. So I'm going to recommend a story on Wired, which is uh, a review of three books. So if uh, anything sounds interesting here, just go ahead and check out the book uh, to see a more elaborate argument. So since we have spent the last half an hour trash and tech companies from Silicon Valley. Uh, the recommendation, uh, the piece I'm going to recommend is also about that. Uh, the piece itself is called An Alternative History of Silicon Valley Disruption. It was posted on Wired last week. 
And it's essentially a review of three books uh, that take a closer look at the quote-unquote disruption uh, that the tech startups of late have been bringing to the markets. Uh, the first book looks at the gig economy paradigm uh, that, as it turns out, was invented way back in the 1970s by McKinsey as a way to maximize profits. There are also a few other examples of the early manifestations of the idea, and uh, as you might have guessed, uh, uh, it's not always a great thing for the community and for labor forces. Uh, here's a quote that sums it up pretty well. And the quote begins, while technical knowledge and venture capital was lauded for the Valley's achievements, that success was made possible by a hidden underworld of flexible, poorly paid labor. Quote ends. Now, the second book in the review examines the technology innovation uh, many of uh, current startups and large tech companies are built upon. Uh, the author of the book, economist Marina Matsukato, argues that uh, most of uh, them were actually funded by the governments uh, rather than venture capitalists, uh, which is why calling the latter the ultimate risk takers is a little bit of an overestimation and exaggeration. So check that out if that resonates with something you're thinking about. And the third book in the review is a more elaborate argument that seems to boil down to just the fact that tech venture capitalists have goals that are not exactly aligned with those of general population. Well, that's not the most surprising conclusion, uh, but still uh, worth uh, checking out for sure. So if anything I just said uh, sounds interesting for you, go ahead and check a story on Wired called An Alternative History of Silicon Valley Disruption. I will put a link uh, in the show notes. Natalie, what do you have today? Yeah, so um, I'm going a little bit farther east um, with with my recommendation this week, and I wanted to share a number um, that you may or may not know, and this number is 996. So apparently this number stands for 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. And this is the working hours of Chinese startups, uh, according to a few different sources, and it's been mentioned in the Wall Street Journal and Recode and, and elsewhere. But over the weekend, someone made this point on Twitter about how Chinese startups are working harder and smarter than everyone else. And their success is really down to this 996 model. That And it set off a bit of a firestorm when it was picked up by David Heinemeyer Hansen. And he made the point really that 996 reflects this 72-hour schedule each week, every week, all year, which is, a, in his words, a positively dystopian vision and a recipe for misery and burnout. So if you don't know um, who, who David is, he's the he's Danish and he's the creator of Ruby on Rails and the founder of Basecamp, which is which he started in Chicago. Um, he's a serial entrepreneur and founder multiple times over. Um, and as you might be able to tell, he's not a fan of this 996. And actually in his writing, um, he really kind of credits um, his upbringing and the, the Danish social security system as one that really was integral to getting um, his family to a state where he was able to be a founder. And he's also done a lot of thinking and thankfully a lot of writing um, about how to have a good workplace. And he's thought a a lot about what are some of the ingredients you need to have a really good working environment. And one of his main premises is that the employees and the customers should really be at the heart of the company rather than having this overly grand mission of changing the world or disrupting everything. 
And this is a bit different from how a number of startups think. And I thought it was pretty fascinating that um, kind of really kind of going back to this point where companies need to consider their employees first. And this was a paradigm that many companies um IBM especially for a long time really operated on, but really kind of going back to this idea that invest in your employees and give them an environment to do their best work. Um, and it doesn't include kind of work hours like this. So he also advocates for a number of other things, such as reducing meetings and getting more work done by eliminating distractions. So things like having constant Slack notifications can be hugely disruptive to your work environment and also kind of prevent you from um, getting using your time at work really value in a valuable way. I think this is a really great conversation to have and one, um, especially in Europe, that I think happens pretty frequently um, because there's often this narrative that puts the U.S. against China versus Europe, especially when it comes to tech. Are we working hard enough? Is our productivity high enough? Can we compete? Um, all of these different questions come up, I think, continually all the time. Um, and there's this press about how there's this race between dominant players. And I, I don't really think startups are thinking that way. Um, but when it comes to work environments, and I think many would argue, um, things in Europe might be, um, like some of the best out there, but it's always worth um, thinking about how we can improve that. And David's created, um, he, he's written a, a recent book, um, called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, kind of really going against this point about, um, we really need to be, um, talking about how crazy busy we are all the time. And we really need to put in place different ways to make our work life better. And there's a few reviews of the book, um, and we'll put that in the show notes. And it really gives you a good gist of, of what it's about if you're interested in reading more. Yeah, this is a great, uh, great conversation. And uh, I would agree that probably we in Europe have it uh, better than uh, people in the US and seems like especially than people in China. But I'm pretty sure that there is no like uh, one opinion about uh, this situation uh, coming from European startups. I had this conversation uh, for a few times with different people and uh, many times I heard this sort of sentiment uh, that, yeah, we just don't work at all in Europe. We have to embrace the culture of the US or better embrace the culture of China and do this uh, 10 hour working days and just never stop. Look at Elon Musk. He spends his nights on the factory floor. This is how we should do this. Honestly, I would not say that this makes any sense and I would definitely agree with uh, uh, David here that this is a sure way to uh, to burn out and it's not something that would actually uh, increase your productivity that much. Being crazy busy doesn't necessarily mean being productive. Yeah, and he really brings up all these points that, you know, we've had this long history of labor laws and labor regulations, and those are things that really should be celebrated. And working in tech, you do see a lot of unhealthy habits and you do see a number of, of kind of negative outcomes of people not taking care of themselves. And it really doesn't have to be that way. So I think it's important, um, especially when, when it, there, there are these voices out there that are really trying to present this alternative, um, to have a listen, especially, um, this is a, a pretty prominent voice, I think. Um, and it makes sense to, to have a look at, at what he has to say. 
Right, this is time for us to wrap it up today. Uh, this is it. We hope you have enjoyed uh, today's podcast. Uh, don't miss our new episodes. Uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app or Spotify. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Tell everyone you know about the podcast if you think it would be relevant for them and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook and even on LinkedIn that Natalie doesn't like. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, opinions, really whatever you think of at andri at tech.eu natalie thank you so much for joining today thank you andri and happy halloween happy halloween to you too enjoy the rest of your week everyone we are going to talk to you next wednesday bye bye bye